Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Um, Grace Bible Church has a special place in my heart just because, well, there's a number of reasons. I was on staff at Glory of Christ, and um, I was um, obviously uh, a part of the effort to merge our church, Glory of Christ, with Grace Bible Church, so I got a front row seat to working with the elders of Grace Bible Church, and, um, and I can t- attest, behind closed doors, these are godly men that are, that are leading you guys, so um, it's nice to know that there's a church in the community that I can point people to. Yes, Grace Bible Church is a place that preaches the gospel, is faithful to the word of God, and, um, and I, I'm thankful for that because, unfortunately, it is a little bit hard to find that type of church these days. So we're thankful for our partnership um, with Grace Bible Church. I'm at Northwest Bible Church now, as Jacob mentioned. It's good to serve there, and it's good to just have partnership with you all. And there's uh, some familiar faces that are near and dear to my heart in this congregation as well. So just uh, want to express my love to you guys, and uh, thank you for welcoming, welcoming me here. A little bit about myself. My wife is with me this morning. I've been married for 20 years. And um, we have three kids. They did not make it. They're teenagers. Eight o'clock is a little on the early side for them. I know there are some teenagers here, so good job if you're a teenager. You made it. Um, we, we counted a, a victory if, if we get our kids to um, uh, Sunday school, which starts at nine at Northwest. So. But uh, three kids, 18 years old, uh, 16 and 14. So we have two drivers. Our life is drastically different. Um, uh, in some ways better. Now I can tell my kids, um, I need ice cream. You have a license. We pay for your insurance. Um, you can go. So um, anyway, we're, we're, we're uh, kind of on the, um, on the cusp of my oldest daughter going to college. So that's a new season for us as well. So we're just navigating through that. All right. So um, my task this morning, I'm going to be preaching through Matthew 18. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read this passage, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll get to work. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew 18, we're going to read the parable of the unforgiving servant. We read in verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, 
And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you so much for your steadfast love. I thank you for your word. Lord, I'm sure many of us have heard this passage, this parable many times. So I just ask, Lord God, that you would impress upon us the good news of the gospel and that we would all see and savor the beauty of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Lord, that we would have a greater appreciation and a greater depth of love for the good news that the gospel truly is for sinners. So I pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes, soften our hearts. Lord, cause the word to go deep in us, we pray, as we just sang. Lord, I pray it as well, that the word would grow deep in us, that it would grow and bear fruit in our hearts, and that one of the biggest fruits that would be growing on our trees would be joy, joy in the gospel, love for Christ. Lord, I pray that that would be real of us, that that would be true of us this morning. After hearing this sermon, I pray that this people would love the gospel all the more. So I just ask, God, that you would help me and help us to listen to your word as it is preached to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, so I recently read a book called uh, Saving My Assassin. Uh, Virginia Prudhan was a, um, in communist Romania in the 1980s. And she was an attorney. She became an attorney and she defended Christians. And because she defended Christians, she put herself at odds with the Romanian government, the communist government. The Securitate was Romania's secret police, and they were tasked with making sure that every single citizen was a good communist, that they would bow their knee to the leader. And this, the Securitate would do terrible things to her. On one occasion, they would study her lives. They knew exactly when their children left the house and where they were at school, and they made her know that. They would study her husband's schedule, work schedule, and they knew when he was gone for weeks at a time, and then she was more vulnerable. At one point, they stationed a security guard at her house so nobody could exit and nobody could enter, and their goal was to starve her to death so that she couldn't get out and get groceries. They didn't have Costco in 80s Romania, so they weren't able to stock up. They were hoping to kind of bleed her out, if you will. That's the sort of thing that happened. Here's one of the quotes that she had when she was talking to her husband, who is a little, un, it's a little unclear as to whether or not he was truly a believer. I have learned, she said, to see the Securitate not as cruel and heartless enemies, but rather as fragile human beings who desperately need God's love in their lives. I decided long ago to forgive them. And to pray that God, who knows their hearts, will transform them. I believe that this is part of God's mission for me, to love and to pray for my enemies. One day, an officer in the interrogation room hit me so hard that my nose started to bleed. And instead of pain, I felt a powerful love, loving force well up within me. Without even thinking, 
I looked up at this man and said, God loves you, and I love you too. His hand, which had been raised to strike me again, stopped in midair, and his eyes began to water. He had to turn his face from me. This is a great display, I think, of the gospel of Jesus Christ at work. What else could account for some kind of love like that? The willingness and the resolve to forgive. Now, the passage that we're looking at this morning, this parable in Matthew 18, is very simple. It calls out the hypocrisy and it warns the hypocrisy of somebody who has encountered the grace of Christ and then not being willing to turn around and extend the grace of Christ outwardly. So don't be that hypocrite. Understand the grace of Christ to the point where it should reflect in extending the grace of Christ. Now, the Bible isn't saying that it is easy to forgive, and it's not saying that it is natural to forgive, but it is saying in this passage that it is Christian to forgive. It is Christian to forgive. So Jesus illustrates this point by telling us a story. And let me outline the story basic, in two basic parts. One is the power for forgiveness. He talks about the power for, for forgiveness. And then I want to also talk about the process of forgiveness. So that's kind of the two ways I want to organize this sermon. Let's talk about the power of forgiveness, and then we'll talk about the process of forgiving. Okay, so starting with the power for forgiveness. Jesus gives the power for forgiveness. Now, the base metaphor for talking about forgiveness is canceling a debt. And this is the way Jesus leads us to, to think about it in this parable. There are two servants who accrue a debt, and they are indebted to another person. And the parable Jesus tells us has to do with forgiving or canceling a debt. And in that way, money, I think, is a good kind of metaphor for this. Because we can understand money has dollars and cents, it has numbers. There's a clear debt and Jesus kind of frames it in this, in this kind of um, picture. We can, excuse, we can excuse offenses, and we should make a distinction here between offenses and sins. Right? We excuse offenses. The Bible makes a distinction between an offense and a sin. You excuse an offense, but you forgive sin. And when we sin against somebody else, we are indebted to them. We are indebted to God and indebted to those who we sin against because it is, is, it is an offense. When we sin, we break God's law. When we offend somebody, we offend their preferences. Right? Being annoying is not sinning. Although we don't like it when people are annoying. But we can't treat it as, as, as if it's a sin. So there is a difference between those two things, and there is an, there is an indebtedness when we sin against somebody. We, sin, we are indebted to God, and we are indebted to the person that we sin against. And God calls us to orient ourselves upon the kingdom of God. One of the first things that Jesus does is he puts it into perspective. He puts this whole discussion into perspective of the kingdom of God. It's like, all right, Peter, let's, let's get our minds in tune with the kingdom of God. Let's think about this the right way. It's interesting how Peter addresses it, or Jesus addresses this right away with Peter. Peter asks how many times he must forgive his brother. Notice the first thing that Jesus does. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to, he puts it in the context of the kingdom. And when you view yourself in light of the kingdom of God, 
It changes everything drastically, radically. It radically changes everything. The way that you view yourself and the way that you view life around you drastically changes when you put life through the lens, when you look at it through the lens of God's kingdom. In fact, forgiveness makes no sense. If you think about it, it makes no sense unless it is in the light of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ's forgiveness, it just, it's... It's nonsensical. But in verse 27, we see the king is moved to pity. Do you see that? The man begs him. The servant begs the master. And the master is moved to pity. And there we see the heart of the, 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 our father God. He is moved to pity. And this reveals, I think, the way that God feels towards his children, towards his elect. He sees our helpless estates and he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to forgive sinners. I think of the famous hymn, It is well with my soul, though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. We are, as sinners, in a helpless estate and we can say, really, forgiveness doesn't make sense, but it starts with the heart of God. Do you see the heart of God is the foundation, the, the beginning, and his love and his pity that he takes on his people. So we see the gracious heart of God, and this is, starts the foundation of, of forgiveness. And we are told that the servant owed the king 10,000 talents. So... Let's break this down a little bit. I Googled this, actually, so I was on the Internet, so we can trust that this is accurate. I got it off the Internet. One talent would have equaled over 16 years of labor. 16 years of labor. 10,000 talents would e is, is 200,000 years of labor. Now, that's a, that's a lot of labor. You're not retiring. I mean, just get that out of your mind. 200,000 years. Uh, Methuselah, he wouldn't have even been able to pay off this debt, right? 60 million working days. That's what it equals. So in modern money, and I don't know, we have to adjust this for inflation, it's $3.48 billion. And that's actually less impressive because we actually have people in our modern economy that could pay that off, you know? If Jeff Bezos is your friend or uncle, you would be, you'd be, you'd be okay. 3.48, that, that, that's, that's a drop in the bucket. I don't think that's the way we should look at this. I think what Jesus is saying is that this is a limitless debt, something that you could never, ever pay off, right? And to be kingdom-minded is to ponder the value and the measure of the grace that has been bestowed upon us. I think Jesus leads us to thinking about the reality that we have been shown great mercy. And more than, more than we would ever be able to pay off. And obviously I think Jesus wants us to stop and think about that. And if you understand this, and you should understand this, you can see that Jesus doesn't think in terms of boundaries. Peter says, seven times should I forgive? And Jesus says, no, 77 times. And did you really think that Jesus is saying, actually 77? Yeah, 
Make a chart and just, you know, when you get to 77, just cut it off. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what, I'm going to blow your mind with this number. It's a limitless number. 200,000 years. Nobody could pay that off. So it's a limitless number. And the standard number given by a rabbi at the time was three times. This is kind of an unwritten code, and the rabbis had these unwritten codes. You know, they had things like on the Sabbath, you can't step more than like 5,200 steps or something like that. So they would kind of put the standard, you know, three times. That's, that, that's, that's the number. Three times is what you can forgive. And then after that, no, they've been cut off, right? So really, if you think about it, when Peter says, should I forgive my brother seven times? I don't know. It, it makes me wonder if, G, if Peter's like, you know what? I'm just going to bend over and you can pat my back right there. He's trying to get a, an attaboy out of Jesus. He's really trying to raise the roof. Like, I'm going above and beyond, not three times, seven. We're talking big time. I'm really committed here. And really, if you think about it, uh, uh, you know, Jesus kind of just, you know, squashes that. And he basically says, Peter, you don't understand the grace of God. It's not contained within numbers, you see. The grace of God um, is, an, is limitless. And if it weren't so, you and all sinners would have no hope. And D. James Kennedy says that God's grace, we can call it God's, his grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's the name of the sermon title. And you guys, as Grace Bible Church, maybe that's particularly meaningful to you. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a good way to memorize or remember what the word grace really is all about. Jesus calls us to be kingdom-minded by contemplating the depth of God's riches and the depths of Christ's response. And that's the other thing I think that this parable draws our attention to, is not only the measure of God, the mercy that flows to me, but also the measure of the expense that Christ had paid. And the, and the, and the pain and the hurt and the sorrow that was on Christ's shoulders because of me. And this passage is a warning against hypocrisy. Don't be like the guy who is forgiven in a limitless fashion and then turns around and chokes another guy for 20 bucks. Don't be that guy. And it's not like a social way, like not in a social way, don't be that guy. He's talking about don't under, misunderstand the grace of God. May the grace of God be deeply impressed upon your conscience, upon your heart, upon your mind, so much so that it will allow you to extend grace outwardly as well. So really, this is a parable that calls us to a lifelong contemplation of the immeasurable grace of God. The grace of God to sinners translates into power for forgiveness. Do you see that? As you are called to meditate on the depths of sin and the depths of grace and the depths of the sacrifice that Christ has made, it actually is power that fuels a life of forgiveness. All right, so that's the power piece. Now let's talk about the process of forgiving. C.S. Lewis said this, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. That is true. 
It's really a great concept, isn't it? It's wonderful. Your kids will sing songs about it. And then somebody will take their toy. And you know what? It's like none of that ever happened. It's like, don't you remember the, the thing we were just talking about? Now, one of the dangers in this parable is the way it gets applied. The point Jesus is making is that it is hypocritical for Christians not to forgive in light of all that they have been forgiven. And it would be really easy to dismiss the pain that is involved in being sinned against, and it would be easy to make it seem like forgiving others should be a cinch. And that we should do so without hesitation. Just forgive and move on. In fact, I actually preached this passage about a year ago. There was another church called Grace Bible Church. Imagine that. Um, It was my brother-in-law. He assigned me this passage and I preached it. And to be honest with you, I left it wondering, "Ah, something just didn't feel quite right about it. And I was having a hard time putting my finger on it. And I think what it was, as I assessed my own sermon, I thought, maybe I made the mistake of making it seem like forgiveness is just too simplistic. Just go ahead and forgive. Just do it. Without recognizing the depths of the realities of what it means to actually forgive. And to illustrate this, I want to point out something that Rachel Denhollander said. Now, if you remember Rachel Denhollander, she was a gymnast who was sexually abused by her trainer. She was taken advantage of. This was a very public case a couple of years ago. And she was a Christian. She is a Christian. And she said this. I'd been taught that forgiveness was both a command and necessity. Something I must do. Something I would need to do for my own healing. I couldn't choose what had been done to me, but forgiveness, my response to abuse, was within my power. That's a powerful point right there. So through anger and tears, I chose. That night, I felt the relief I'd been promised. I meant the words I had written, and their sincerity brought conviction that I had won a hard-fought battle. What I did not know in that moment That the exhausted relief was nothing more than a brief calm before the storm. Not 48 hours later, I was reeling, beginning to realize that what I thought was the closing of a door was really the wedge that allowed it to burst open. What is she saying? She's saying it's not easy to forgive, and it's a process. And you have to expect, depending on the severity of the sin that was, you've been sinned against, that there is a process to work through with it. Sin offends God and it hurts people. And Jesus doesn't trivialize your hurt by asking us to pretend that there isn't a debt. And see, these are some of the wrong ideas of what forgiveness is. It's not pretending that there isn't anything there. It's not ignoring that there was a real offense, and it's not reclassifying it. Oh, we'll downgrade this sin to an offense. Remember when I talked about this at the beginning? We're not just saying, oh, you know what, there's a real offense. We'll just, cla- we'll just reclassify it as an offense. It just offended my sensibilities. It wasn't actually 
a sin that broke God's law. So it's not pretending, it's not ignoring, it's not reclassifying. Christianity doesn't even offer the false hope that the past will be erased. Remember that Jesus' wounds in his hands are in his glorified body, which means the past, to some extent, will never be erased from our thinking, from our understanding. I believe that when we're on the new earth, we have reason to believe that Jesus' wounds will still be in his hands. So it doesn't erase the past. The wounds in Jesus' hands will be there. Biblical forgiveness is a journey into the hornet's nest of pain and it measures the full extent of the debt. It is real and it is honest. Christianity leads us to be real and it leads us to be honest about the extent of the damage and the extent of the pain. And I want to call us to remember how we read the Bible. Remember that parables are meant to make one main point. Now, this parable isn't suggesting that forgiveness should be easy. It's not suggesting that someone should be forgiven unconditionally either. But when we look at the parables, it might seem simple because, again, when we read parables, it's making one simple point. And Jesus is trying to make one simple point, that it is Christian to forgive. But he's not necessarily saying, hey, it's simple, it's a sin, just do it, just do it. Just get it done, it's, it's possible, so therefore you should just do it. And he's not even saying that it should be unconditional. So this parable invites us to meditate not only on the great debt that was canceled for us, but it also invites us to meditate on the sacrifice, the great sacrifice that was made by Jesus at my expense or because I caused it. And here's a quote from Brad Hambrick. He talked in his book on forgiveness, which is excellent. If you're looking for a good book on forgiveness, get the one by Brad Hambrick. When I say I forgive you, you are not necessarily saying things are all better now. You are saying, I have decided I will relate to your offense towards me differently. When you forgive, you are making a commitment about what you will do with the hurt when it flares up. You are trusting God and you are making a commitment to him to say, this is how I'm going to now deal with this pain. And I think of the movie, The Princess Bride. You guys ever see that one? You know the line. Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Yeah, again, thanks to Google, I know. He says that six times throughout the movie. And that's maybe why it's so memorable. It's interesting that this movie was, in some ways, it feels like it was a staple of like the youth group movie in the 90s, right? And if it were really Christian, it probably wouldn't crescendo on revenge. Maybe you would say, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Let's be reconciled. But there is something about the way the world views offenses and the way that we work past that. The only way conceivable in the mind cut off from God is revenge. 
And vengeance is a part of the equation here. Let's, not, let's be honest about that. God takes vengeance on his enemies, on the wicked. Brian was talking about that. There is a reality between the righteous and the wicked. These are two different classes of people, and there will be very, very different outcomes for them. But the Bible also does say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And yes, there is a part where human agencies play a part in vengeance. But by and large, the overwhelming majority or the overwhelming message of the Bible is that we extend grace on behalf of Christ and we allow God to take vengeance. So the world's understanding of resolution is not just revenge. There is actually a better Christian pathway, and that is to forgive. Forgiveness is what allows us to express hurt as hurt, rather than hurt as anger. Anger leads to revenge. And we could say that it is assuaged in revenge, but is it really? Is it really? Is our anger in a lasting way actually satisfied in revenge if we were able to kill the person who took our father's life? So Brad Hamburg says this, forgiveness is what allows us to express hurt as hurt rather than hurt as anger. Without Christ enabling us to be forgiving, our only hope would be in revenge and watching the people that brought us pain also be in pain. Christianity does something interesting. It takes our own thirst for blood and it directs us to Jesus where we realize he is bleeding because of me. And I think that is the gospel. He takes our eyes off of the ways that we have been offended and he puts our eyes on Christ who is wrongfully offended and is bleeding now because of my sin. And this not only diffuses my anger, it also empowers me now to pursue healing and forgiveness. That is a glorious message. That is good news. Behold the glory of Christianity. Behold the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christianity calls the offended, calls the offended to be honest about their offense and feel the full extent of their pain. But it also secures them in the love of God and it bases their identity not in the way that they have been wronged, but in the fact that you are a beloved child of God. And thus, Jesus quenches my thirst for revenge and frees me to hope for true healing. Christianity calls those who offend to embrace the hurt that they cause. It doesn't ask them to, you know what, let's just not think about that. Let's just move on. Let's just bury that somewhere. No, no. Be real about the offense, your offense. And we can be as honest with it as we should be. And we should be utterly honest with ourselves about it. This is the extent 
God does not hide this from our eyes. He lets us to see how Jesus bled and died. He doesn't cover that up and say, well, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to make you feel bad about yourself. No, the Bible lets us feel bad about ourselves. He, the, he, the Bible lets us see the extent to the offense of our sin. And we can totally grasp how deep it cuts. But, but, here's the good news. It doesn't leave you there. It doesn't leave you in a state of condemnation. It says, you know what, there's another day here. There's another chapter. So we embrace the hurt that we cause, but it promises to wipe the slate of our conscience clean of any guilt ever again. Isn't that a glorious hope? Let me tell you the severity, but let me also tell you that's not all there is. There is a new day dawning if you have faith in Christ, if you surrender yourself to him. And Christianity doesn't erase the past, but it still offers the hope of a future without condemnation. A way forward in, way, in a way that you are not defined by your pain. You are not defined by the hurt or the offense against you. You are now defined by the love of God that is expressed to you in Christ. So I love that about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is utterly honest. It doesn't cover anything up. It doesn't act like it's not there. It is. But it's not ultimate. There is a new ultimate reality, and that is you are loved by the almighty God. And you are forgiven, and now you have that same power. And that is a process. That is a process. We shouldn't dismiss that, and we shouldn't trivialize it, we shouldn't minimize it, and we shouldn't address other people, not yourself, and you shouldn't address other people. I mean, this has major implications for the way we do life together. The way that we apply the Bible to one another, we shouldn't trivialize other people's hardships. Don't oversimplify it. Understand, yes, it is Christian to forgive. Yes, there is power in the gospel, but there's also a process that comes with it as well. So some concluding ideas here. Let me make a few points of application. Um, when we think about this, forgiveness requires assessments that align with God's truth. When we think about when we offer forgiveness and when we don't, we are called ultimately to surrender our lives under God's almighty word. To make distinctions between what is an offense and what is an actual sin that breaks God's law. Our relationships actually anchor us on God's truth. We allow God to distinguish the difference between sin and an offense in a very real way, right? Your relationships, human relationships, become the theater in which God's truth is played out. That's why your relationships are so valuable. Doing life together. You need more than just good preaching on Sunday morning. You need more than that. You need to do life together where God's word can be exercised and applied and massaged into your life because that is the theater upon which God's truth becomes known. His grace becomes known to you. In Matthew 18, we see that everyone is in agreement with the assessment of debt and a debt being canceled. Forgiveness requires both the offended and the offender to be in agreement over the nature of the sin. So one of the ways um, I can talk about this, we taught our children 
especially when they were young, to ask for forgiveness when they sinned. And we, the, the language that you use in your house, for instance, the language that you use for one another, right? When you sin, you should ask for forgiveness. And you should grant forgiveness. It's okay, I forgive you. And what this does, I would think, is that it implies that the only thing that could make right what, what you did was Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. In this way, you know, if you talk about forgiveness, yes, okay, I've sinned, I've, would you forgive me? And if you say, yes, I forgive you, in a sense, this could be offensive because it holds the offender accountable to the full extent. And it says the only thing that can actually rectify what you have done to me is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's how great your offense was. You didn't just offend my sensibilities. You didn't just annoy me. You actually broke God's law, and you are now indebted to me. That's the reality of the situation. And I'm in a position to choose now to actually forgive you. So think about your language, especially in, in your households. If you're raising children, how you talk to your spouses. When you offend, when you sit, when you break God's law, use the language of, I, for, I've sinned, I, would you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And you shouldn't forgive offenses. You annoyed me, right? It's okay, I forgive you. Well, that's not really accurate. All right. We should also beware of growing cavalier or entitled to God's forgiveness, do you just assume that you are worthy or you deserve God's forgiveness? And if you've been walking with Christ for any measure of time, it is easy, and I've recognized this in my own heart, in my own life, yeah, God owes me forgiveness. And that's a dangerous place to get to. Because you do, he doesn't owe me forgiveness. It is grace, it is unmerited. He doesn't owe me and I should not cease to be amazed by the fact that God has forgiven me and that he will forgive me. So don't presume upon his grace. That is dangerous. Um, last point, we are never more like Christ than when we forgive. And how we understand forgiveness is how we portray Christ. And according to Luke 15, forgiveness brings joy, God joy. Forgiveness brings God's God joy, and it is the pathway for our joy as well. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And just because God's forgiveness is limitless, here's another thing I want to say to us. Just because his forgiveness is limitless doesn't mean that it's unconditional. There's a distinction there. Jesus calls sinners not only to ponder the mercy of God, but their offense that warrants the depths of his mercy. I think Jesus points us to this in this parable. And forgiveness is an invitation to a new way of life, a new way to surrender yourself to the fact that God is king. And when God cancels our debt, he says, call me Lord and submit to my way for your life. And one of the ways I think I see this in this parable is the man who was forgiven a great debt and then he didn't turn around. 
You know, there is an expectation there that he would actually change his life, that he would surrender himself to Jesus as king. And he doesn't, and he winds up being judged. And the reality is, repentance is a part of this equation here. I remember a story where I was with my kids. We were driving, I think, to Duluth, and something had happened. I had sinned against them, and then I asked them for forgiveness. And my oldest daughter at the time, she must have been about 14 or so, she had wisdom beyond her years and said, you know, Dad, I'm not sure I want to forgive you, or that I should. And I thought, who are you? to withhold forgiveness from me. And then I got to thinking, you know what? Maybe she's right. Maybe there was a negligence, a carelessness on my part. There's a lack of repentance and a lack of appreciation for the fact that I continually do this to my kids and I'm not taking it seriously. Now, Jesus does say up to 77 times, you should just keep doing it. I don't think he's exactly getting at that notion. If there is repentance, and I think from the, the fuller picture of the Bible, if there's repentance, if there is a surrendering to God, I think it, it, there's, there's an involvement in that. So limitless doesn't mean unconditional. And going back to the introductory story, we can say that offering forgiveness is within our control And it is a decision that we must consciously make in faith. When we look at Virginia Perdon, she said, I had decided. Rachel Denhollander said the same thing. I made the decision. And to forgive is in our control. If you are a Christian, God has empowered that by his spirit. Now, it is not easy, but it is possible And it's possible because of the cross. May we know Jesus, may we follow him, and may we find fullness of life in surrendering to him. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to navigate these things. If there's anything I said that is confusing or inaccurate, I pray that that would fall away from us and it wouldn't stick. But Lord, whatever is from you, Lord, may it stick. May it give us life. May it give us hope. May it deepen our appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.